Well, what a joy and delight it is to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in uh, Hosea chapter 3. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of years in California, so I'm really not understanding this white stuff falling from the ground. Seriously, when I pastored in California, if it rained, I could count on a 20% drop-off that Sunday in attendance. Just so soft in California. So, praise God for you, the redeemed of the Lord, who braved the elements. Uh, to be here, to be here today. I'm grateful to Brandon and his leadership and uh, to this church uh, for the invitation to just come and to be here uh, with you. Um, I was uh, in Brandon's study uh, earlier today, and uh, I asked him a question I often ask uh, whenever I am a guest uh, speaker at someone else's church, how long do I have? Uh, reminded me of the time uh, I was in, um, in Charlotte many years ago. Uh, I was at a Presbyterian church, chocolate preacher preaching at a Presbyterian church, and uh, uh, I asked, how long do I have? And the pastor said, oh, dear brother, we are a spirit-filled, spirit-led church. Time means nothing here. You preach as long as you'd like, but the people leave at 12. <laughs> so... I am going to be respectful uh, to the culture of the church and what you all uh, are used to. Uh, just to give you a roadmap where we're going today, I was praying uh, last night, Lord, what do you want me to share? Uh, and uh, unfortunately, he wants me to give two different messages uh, today. And uh, I'm going to be talking, uh, the focus of these messages are out of the fruit of the Spirit. So this morning, uh, this first um, uh, service, we're going to look at love. And then the second service, we're going to look at uh, an aspect of the spirit you all have dominated, crushed, patience. And uh, didn't get any amens on that one. Um, so we're going we're gonna to be doing that. Let me say a word of prayer, and then we can, we can launch out. Father, we are indeed grateful and thankful for what you are doing here in this section of your vineyard. I'm encouraged already by the few moments that we've had together. Thank you for 10 years of your faithfulness, fruitfulness in and through this church. And we pray, Lord God, for even more gospel-saturated fruitfulness, Lord God, in and through this body of believers. Father, you have not promised to bless my feeble attempts at articulation. What you have promised to do is to bless your word. So I pray that your word would be, would be privileged today, would be emphasized, that it would be unleashed upon us. I pray that we would not ultimately leave with just more notes or more information, but that we would leave, Lord God, more inspired that as the Puritans used to say, our affections would be stirred. For someone who does not know you as Lord and Savior, may they be compelled, Father, today to turn from their ways into following you, Jesus, who is the way. As my grandmama used to say, put shoe leather on your word. Show us how we should walk in it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A young man sat down to have a conversation with, um, with an elderly woman. 
Not long into the conversation, this young man noticed that situated on the coffee table between them um, was a dish filled with what looked like the most delightful, delectable peanuts he had ever seen in his life. I mean, these things looked off the chain. This elderly woman was pouring her heart out to him in conversation, but he was distracted by the awesomeness of these peanuts. And so he, he interrupted her. He said, ma'am, I'm so sorry, but these peanuts look amazing. They look off the chain. Do, do you mind if I have some? She paused what felt like 10 seconds in all reality is probably five or six as she's pausing this man is thinking you would think i was asking her for some money what's the big deal just peanuts and finally she acquiesced yes young man you can have them she commenced to then pouring out her soul again to him as she, he started popping the peanuts into his mouth and some moments later much to his horror he looked down into the dish and realized the dish was empty he interrupted her again. He says, ma'am, I'm so sorry. My mama raised me better than this. Here, here I am, a guest in your house, and I done ate up all your peanuts. But I have to say, they tasted as good as they looked. These things were off the chain. They, they were the best peanuts I've ever had in my life. Can you please, ma'am, tell me where you got them from? I have to have them. Well, now she is, she's embarrassed. She's turning a bright shade of red. She pauses for what feels like an eternity in reality. It's probably 10, 15 seconds this time. Again, he's thinking, what in the world? I mean, you would think I'm asking her for all the money in the world. I'm just asking her where she got these peanuts from. And finally, she says, well, young man, as you can see, I'm an older woman. And as such, I have no teeth. These peanuts used to be covered in chocolate. But because I have no teeth, I just suck the chocolate off and spit them back into the dish. The moral of the story is things are not always as they appear. <laughs> and what's true of once chocolate-covered peanuts, I fear, is true of so many people who think they are saved, but in reality, they are not. I'm thinking now of a great mid-20th century British preacher, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I should say the London preacher. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that Matthew chapter 7 is the most harrowing text in all of the New Testament. Here is Jesus. He is reaching for his crescendo there in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Then he envisions a day when people will come to him on that judgment day and say, wait a minute, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And he then says these disturbing words, depart from me, I never knew you. The great tragedy of hell is that hell will have many parking spaces reserved for church-attending people who served in ministry, but we're as lost as the day is long. The question then on the table is, how then do I know that I'm saved? Jesus tells us earlier in Matthew 7, he says, you shall recognize them by their fruit. Fruit, what is that? 
It is a changed and changing lifestyle that cannot be blamed on the normal maturation process of adulthood, but can only be blamed on the indwelling power of the Spirit of God pulsating through the life of the surrendered believer. We used to sing a song in my church growing up because this idea of fruit this idea of sanctification, of salvation. In fact, I was just listening to one of uh, our great, our great uh, psalmists in the black church. Her name is Tremaine Hawkins. It's a shame any of you all don't know that name. Her brother, Edwin Hawkins, wrote the classic, Oh, Happy Day. But she sang the most um, theologically rich song I have ever heard on sanctification. It's a song simply titled, Changed. And in this song, she says these words, I, I am not what I want to be, but I am not what I used to be. Oh, y'all ain't gonna say amen. This is a quiet church. <laughs> Y'all are begging for a long sermon because when I don't hear nothing, I don't think you're getting it, and that makes me preach longer. So you better say amen, preach it, brother. When you're ready for me to finish, say land the plane, and we'll land the plane. See, the truth of the gospel is every legitimate believer should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their journey with Jesus and conclude two things. I am not where I want to be, but I am not where I used to be. It's the only way you really know you're saved. My pastor, Bishop Ulmer, once told this story to 13,000 members there at his church in Inglewood, and so I don't mind telling several hundred of us who are gathered. He, he says, you know, when I first got saved, I, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat. But now since following Jesus, I don't cuss that fast anymore. <laughs> He's not condoning profanity. He's just pulling us into the reality of sanctification. Yes, Tremaine Hawkins is right. I am not what I want to be. But I am not what I used to be. Or as that great king of gospel, James Cleveland, said, it was a song we used to sing there in my little chocolate church on the south side of Atlanta. Please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. So how do I know that I'm saved? Again, it's this idea of fruit. Jesus says, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, not by the arguments you have on Facebook, not by your ability to critique critical race theory, not by the theological tones you've read, but by this will all men know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. 1 Corinthians 13, that, that, that great love chapter. Some of you had it recited at your wedding. Now abideth faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. One scholar says that love is the MVP of all New Testament virtues. 
Paul gets to this in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is no coincidence that the leadoff batter to the list is love. An unloving Christian is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction in terms. Thinking now of the great homiletics professor at Beeson Divinity, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. God bless his soul. I just found out he had a stroke the other day. He's convalescing right now. Dr. Robert Smith, Jr., I'm sure this observation is not unique to him, but he is known to say that every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. Every New Testament point as an Old Testament picture. I think the most profound Old Testament picture for love is Hosea chapter 3. Let's look at it. I, I want to read the whole chapter to you. Relax, it's just five verses. Hosea says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love, love, love a woman who is loved by another man and is, not used to be, is, not was, is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So, hear the detail. Verse 2, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. If you want to know what it looks like to love someone, Hosea 3 is the picture. As we come to the book of Hosea, God is hurt. I imagine he calls Hosea in for a closed-door session, and he says, Hosea, I, I just want to pour my heart out to you. I'm hurt. I have entered into covenant, not contract. Hebrew word is actually hesed. I've entered into covenant, this binding agreement with my people, and yet my people are spiritual adulterers. They are, his words, not mine, whoring after other gods. You do understand that, that every time we sin, we not only commit idolatry, but we also commit adultery. The nature of adultery says, I will not find my satisfaction in this committed relationship with God. I will look for satisfaction independent of God. So lest you think Israel is the only one committing adultery every single time we sin, we say, God, you are not sufficient. So here's God. He's, he's saying, my people are committing spiritual adultery. They are serial philanderers. And I guess they've given me license to divorce them. But in my holiness, 
I can't. I want to show my people my profound love for them. I want to show them that I've got more mercy than they've got mess. Oh, if I was in a chocolate church, cue the Hammond B3 organ. Y'all ain't got one of them here. I imagine Hosea saying, okay, God, how do you want to show them? You, you want me to preach a sermon? Ah! Okay, God, you want me to write a book? That'll come later. H Hosea, I actually want to use you as my divine show and tell for my inexhaustible love for my people. Jose, I know you just graduated from seminary. I, I know you just got called to pastor this church, and I know you're still single, but I'm going to fix that, Jose. I, I, I got a bride picked out for you. Can't you see Jose is smiling right now? I can see it on his face. Uh, okay, God, what's her name? Her, her name, Hosea, is Gomer. Now, no offense. At this point, I'm no longer smiling because I've never met a cute Gomer in my life. If your mama named you Gomer, I'm so sorry, no offense. Well, what does she do, God? Chapter 1, she's a prostitute. Oh, no, 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 God. I, I can just see it at my installation, walking down the middle aisle, the people looking at the prophet with the prostitute the man of God with the woman of the night. No, God, that is, that is just too strange of a sight. And God, in so many words, responds by saying, well, that's exactly the point, Jose. Remember, your marriage is never about your marriage, but your marriage is an illustration of how I relate to my people. Oh, if I were teaching on marriage, I would stop right there, come into your house, put my feet up on your coffee table, and tell you that your marriage is not Will Smith, Oprah Winfrey uh, interview. It is not about your happiness. That is a secondary byproduct. Your marriage, Hosea, is to tell the truth of my inexhaustible love for the world. And yes, it is strange that a prophet would be with a prostitute, but I can do you one stranger. The fact that I, a holy God, stoop so low as to be with you is an even stranger sight. One of the ways that love is most clearly seen to the world is in its contrast. The starker the contrast, the stronger the witness of love. When I was in seminary, I was poor. Not poor. Couldn't afford the other O and the R. I was poor. And I was in love. Bad combination. The woman I was in love with is my wife now. And so it came time for me to start looking for the engagement ring. And I, um, I would walk into the jeweler and I, I would notice. I'd give the jeweler the specs to the diamonds. I would notice and you probably noticed this too, 
Jewelers never took those diamonds and just plopped them down on the glass counter. They would always roll out a black piece of velvet cloth. And they would put the diamonds down and against the contrast of that black piece of velvet cloth, it would only make the diamond radiate all the more. Jewelers understand there's something to contrast. That's why I applaud your journey into what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community. What the multi-ethnic church does, it's a study in contrast. It is a veracity to the brilliance of God's love when people walk into a room and they look that there is a family of people doing life with one another and loving one another, and the contrast is stark. How strange is your dinner table? My youngest son thinks he's God's gift to basketball. I heard someone uh, got called out there from NC State. I'm, I'm new to the Raleigh-Durham area, and I, you know, I was just trying to figure out. Well, our Blue Ridge campus has a lot of NC State folks. I said, what's NC State good at? <laughs> they didn't say nothing. They told me, y'all are good at hope. Hope is what you're good at. Rashid Wallace, uh, Tar Heel great, just picked up my youngest son on his team, and my son did 50,000 miles last spring. They're traveling all over the country playing in these tournaments. Cost me a lot of money. I'm saving all these receipts. <laughs> when we moved to the Bay Area some years ago, he got picked up on a great team out there. We go to the first tournament. We live in San Jose. We drive about an hour north on the 280 freeway to San Francisco. We sit down for the first tournament. My son's what, what they would call the two guard. He's the shooting guard. And we're sitting next to the parents of the point guard on our team. And uh, these parents are a lesbian couple. And we get to know them. They're showing public displays of affection. I grew up in Atlanta and in the 80s, this is new to me. It's, it's strange to me. At the end of the tournament, we exchange numbers. We hop back in our car, drive down south on the 280, back to our home there in San Jose. My wife and I turned to each other, and in so many words, we said, what, what would it look like to engage them? Not to, the, not to the view of changing them. We can't even change ourselves. What would it look like to love them. So we invited them over to eat, and about a week or so later, they're at our house, and we're sitting down, and they're holding hands, and we're enjoying a good meal together, and I find out what they do for a living, and secretly I go, do not ask me what I do for a living. And <laughs> talk about a conversation stopper. I find out that they're atheists. And so that's how the fall season goes. They 
come over and we're hanging out and we're doing life with one another. And finally, they dropped the question. Well, Brian, we've been hanging out and spending so much time together and you know what we do, but we've never asked you, what do you do for a living? And I said, okay, here we go. I, I'm a pastor. I tell people how to find true meaning, value, and significance in life through God's only son, Jesus Christ. And you talk about a record-scratching moment. One of them gets up from the table and marches to the door and mutters under her breath, never saw that coming, and I'm thinking, you guys call us judgmental? Who's the one being judgmental here? But as a pastor, you learn early on, you can't say everything you're thinking. So I diffuse the situation, I crack a joke, they come back, and we stitch things up. A couple months later, now we're in spring season, and they, they call me and they say, listen, our son's getting to the age. He's not being very responsive to us. He's 13 years old. It's obvious that he needs a man's voice in his life. And so I hope this isn't presumptuous, but we just got out of our lease. Remember, we live in Sunnyvale, which is um, a good distance from where you are. We just got out of our lease, and uh, we just leased a home around the corner from you are because we think you are the one who needs to be mentoring our, our son. I'm like, no pressure. And they said, we're doing a housewarming this Sunday after service. Would you, would you mind coming, coming over and blessing our house? I said, as in praying to God. He says, absolutely, do your thing. And so after service, we rush over to the house. And, and from the looks of it, we're the only heterosexual people in the joint. And God bless that youngest son of mine. He cannot whisper to save his life. <laughs> he goes, Dad. Are you uncomfortable? <laughs> shut up, boy, shut up. So I bless the house. I pray over all the rooms. And the whole time, someone's taking pictures of us. Next day, I'm in my office at church, and my wife texts me, honey, they done tagged us on Facebook. Just then, uh, one of the oldest members of our church, a sweet octogenarian mother, she, she calls. She says, Pastor, I've been on Facebook. Now, that's when a conversation starts that way with an 80-something-year-old. It's not good. Her words, not mine. She says, is my pastor partying with homosexuals? Because the Jesus I know would not do that. There's a verse in the Bible. If you gave me one verse to cut out, there's one verse I don't like. It's this one. Do not rebuke an older person. I know a whole lot of older folk who need to be rebuked. I said, ma'am, you better look up on Jesus again because the Jesus I know hung out in some strange places. How strange are your relationships? If people are primarily coming to church out of relationships, then Soma's sanctuary is merely reflecting your dinner table. Let me tie this little story up. 
couple weeks later, we come to their parents and we say, hey, look, crazy idea. We're, we're, we're going on summer vacation. We're going to go to New York City for a week. Then we're going to go down south to South Carolina to a Christian, a Christian, a Christian camp. We'd love to take your son with us. We'll pay for everything. We know it's a big ass, thousands of miles away. You think about it. They said, we don't even think about it. Our son can come. We bring their son with us. Had a great time. Last night at camp, he says, Mr. Loritz, can we take a walk? I said, yes, son, we can take a walk. He says, thank you. As you know, my dad's not been in my life. This is the first time I've ever been on vacation. Can you show me how to become a Christian? And on that little trail, he prayed to receive Christ. What got him on that plane wasn't my position paper on the gay community. It was love. And I know your inner Pharisee is in distress. Just say it's wrong. I just, I just need to hear you say it. Just say it's wrong. Bible says that when they saw Jesus, they saw a man full of grace and truth. Oftentimes, people won't hear truth until they first feel grace. We get back, and I knew it was going to happen a week later. His biological mom, who's in that gay relationship, called. She says, Brian, I don't know what happened on that trip, but ever since my son's been back, he's got a big old Bible, and he's telling me I need Jesus or I'm going to hell. I'm thinking, we got to work on your presentation. <laughs> she says, but honestly, my wife and I would love to come to your church. She says, but Christians have hurt us. Is your church safe? And just about every Sunday thereafter, if you were to come into our church there in Mountain View, on the front row is my wife and I, seated next to this lesbian couple, a strange sight. The problem with Christianity is we've gotten far too tribal. You can drive down the street and go, that's the Fox News church. That's the MSNBC church. That's the CNN church. We have allowed Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity and Don Lemon to disciple us more than Jesus. Let me wrap up. I, I, I don't know when it happened, but it happened. By the time we, got to, we get to chapter 3, they are estranged. We know that because chapter 3, God says, Hosea, go again. And we know that the reason why that they're separated is because she cheated. Remember, the text says she is an adulteress. She's the one who cheated. Now, if I'm Hosea, I'm like, praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. I don't want to be with you in the first place. Your name is Gomer. You can't be cute. <laughs> God says, remember, Hosea, your marriage is not about your marriage. It's to tell the truth about who I am. And if every time you did something that disappointed me, I wiped my hands clean of you, you wouldn't have made it out the first day. 
So I need you to do to her what I do to you every single day. I need you to go again and go again and go again. Who is in your life that you need to go again with? Then verse 2, he says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Why is this important? Scholars tell us the devil is in the details. She is being in modern parlance, uh, modern parlance, she's being sex trafficked. The going rate to emancipate a woman who is in this horrible situation was 30 shekels of silver. So why does it say, I emancipated her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley? Why does it just say, I emancipated her for 30 shekels? Answer, he didn't have 30 shekels. So to emancipate the one who cheated on him, bankrupted him. How do I know I'm loving someone? You pay a cost. If you ain't paying a price, you ain't loving. Isn't that our problem, though? We want Nordstrom quality community at thrift store prices. Pastor Brandon and I haven't had this conversation, but what trips me out about church folk, I love my church, I love my church, but you ain't serving. It's really quiet. The biblical idea of love is we pay a cost. To love means the willingness to inconvenience myself for the convenience of others. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it means when Paul writes in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. Who are you paying 15 shekels of silver and a home and a lethic of barley? But if I were to stop it right here, one more point, I would make love to be this spineless thing that our culture calls tolerance. Intolerance is such a low ethic. I tolerate you. Thank you. Christians are not called to tolerance. We're called to love, and let's go home on this. Notice what he does after he emancipates her. And I said to her, you must not play the whore. He gives her a standard, which means love has a standard. And it's here where I will tell your inner Pharisee to calm down because you need to understand that when this gay couple came to me and says, would you do a renewal of the vows? I said to them, am I allowed to disagree with you without being called a bigot. He says, we spent a lot of time together. But my vision of marriage is not based on my feelings. It's based on the word of God. Because of that, I can't. And I was bracing myself for an eruption, and I loved her response. Oh, Brian, stop being dramatic. We figured you couldn't. <laughs> and they were at church the next Sunday because I had made so many relational deposits. I could just see your inner Pharisee. It's calmed down now. But notice the order. 
Notice he emancipates her first and then he gives her the standard. Had he given the standard prior to the emancipation, he would have made her obedience conditional. But instead, he emancipates her first and then gives her the standard so that her obedience isn't in the category of duty but delight, and that is the gospel. God does not say to Israel when they are in Egypt, here, do these 10 things and then I'll open the Red Sea. Instead, what he does is he opens the Red Sea first and then gives them the 10 commandments. Why? So that their obedience wouldn't be in the category of duty, but in delight. Or here, Romans 2, 4, it is God's kindness that leads to our repentance. It is never our repentance that leads to God's kindness. And that's why I've been preaching this wrong. As we prepare for community, I've been, communion, I've been preaching this wrong. This text is not ultimately about how you relate to other people. This text is about how God relates to you, which means this. We are all Gomer. And until you see yourself as Gomer, you will never love this way. Until you recognize I'm the whore. I'm the prostitute. I'm the one toe up from the flow up. And that don't work here, I know. <laughs> if you don't get there, friends, you'll be a self-righteous Pharisee who is blinded to your own sin, nursing your little judgments on everybody else. Only gomers can love this way. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for this community of gomers. I pray that when people walk into Soma Midtown for the first time, something in them innately says, oh, how they love. They love across ethnic lines and economic lines. And dare I even say, even across sexual lines. Thank you for redeeming we gomers. Thank you for going again with us. Thank you that on the cross, Jesus, you paid your 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. May we never forget. In Jesus' name, amen.